Hello, I'm Lily Hyam. And I'm Gordon Johnston. Welcome to the Last Question podcast, brought to you by the Data Lab, Scotland's innovation centre for data and AI hosted by the University of Edinburgh. We're delighted to be back for a second season. It's great to be back and we're excited to bring you more fascinating interviews with people at the cutting edge of science. It's all very, very exciting. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider leaving us a rating or a review on your platform of choice. We really appreciate it and it really helps bump us up the algorithms. So if you go forth and do that, that would be lovely. Uh, In a second, we'll introduce you to today's guest. But first, Lily, how do you feel about the moon? For or against? Well, I think since I watched Moonfall, I have to say for because isn't it something created by ancient aliens and it hosts like a AI swarm inside it or something? Yeah. So I probably should say yes, um, all hail moon. I love the idea of the moon being an enormous megastructure. That film was fantastic. Mm. Like really, really, it was fantastic in a literal sense of the word. (laughs) Yeah. Um, in the same way that it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it, that, that was fun, though. Yeah, I, yeah, I enjoyed it as a fun thing that I can think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I wouldn't say that it's going to go down in like the annals of history as one of the, like, the masterpieces of cinema. But it was a lot of fun, and it had the guy from Game of Thrones in it. Which one? I don't know his name in Game of Thrones or in Moonfall. I just don't know which any of those people were. <laughs> he he was the guy who thought that the moon was a megastructure. Oh. Uh, but then there's the other guy who's in everything, but nobody knows his name. He's in like all the horror films. Hmm. But it's he's not like, helping me very much. No. Well, are you pro or against moon? Uh, I'm I'm fairly pro moon. You know, uh, it's remember we learned in one of our other podcasts that the moon is in a unique position. Um, where like lunar eclipses aren't normal out there in the universe it's actually mm. really quite unique and special that our moon is in the exactly the right position to do that mm. so that's pretty cool so i think that that in itself is a reason to be pro moon all oh, hail <laughs> our guest today is dr Catherine rahill senior scientist for the office of the chief scientist of nasa's human research program She leads assessments to inform NASA's decisions concerning approaches and strategies to mitigate the risk of negative physiological effects associated with long-duration spaceflight. Her work entails monitoring research on human health and performance risks in NASA astronauts and providing strategic planning of integrated approaches to reduce those risks. One of Catherine's main areas of uh, interest is the gloriously named lunar psychophysics, a field of study that aims to understand the perceptual distortions humans experience while on the moon. Understanding why we see differently on the moon and in other non-Earth environments will be critical to to the success of future manned space journeys to the moon, to Mars, to asteroids and beyond. Psychophysics is the subfield of psychology devoted to the study of physical stimuli and their interaction with sensory systems. For example, vibrating air hitting the bones in our ears to create perceptual sound is a psychophysical process. So without further ado, let's launch straight into our interview with Dr. Catherine Rahill of NASA. Thanks so much for joining us, Kat. Yeah, thanks for having me. So before we talk about the human experience of the moon, could you tell us a bit about what the moon's atmosphere or exosphere and surface is like and how it is different to Earth's? 
Sure. So the best way I can summarize it is, uh, you know, the moon's atmosphere, what we call, you know, exosphere, um, it's quite different uh, from Earth's and it has led to some unique challenges um, for um, multiple different reasons. But, um, you know, having this thin exosphere creates essentially a vacuum and uh, and similar to the vacuum of space, you know, it's very, very austere and not obviously suitable for life without life support systems. So that's, you know, the predominant, you know, difference between Earth and, and the moon's atmosphere. Um, you know, and so the lunar exosphere, it consists of a lot of high energy photons and all these solar wind particles. There's no atmosphere and it doesn't have enough gravity to keep things in. And so, you know, it's often that, you know, gases and all of these kind of, you know, chemical reactions tend to dissipate rather quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, this in combination with, uh, the lunar regolith or the surface in terms of, you know, the materials that it's made out of. Um, it also consists of, you know, different types of dust particles with properties that in combination just with the lack of an atmosphere on the moon, the way that the sun scatters is much more intense. It's not always equally distributed. And when it interacts with the lunar surface, it can create a really bizarre kind of ununiform type of scattering across the surface. And this can result in, you know, you know distortion of, you know, perception of objects, you know, that are in the distance up close to you and you can either be completely blinded by the sun's brightness or depending on how it's being scattered and the angle of the sun, it can also just conceal objects into the blackness of space altogether. Mm, I, I remember looking at some, I went to um, an exhibition in Glasgow Science Centre that had, um, it was a photography ex, uh, exhibition from Apollo's photos of the moon landing. And looking at some of these pictures of hills in the distance and craters and I could not tell at all whether it was a small hill close up or a big hill far away. Um, so that must have been because of those lighting conditions and maybe because of photography as well. Yeah, you know, so we call it um, on Earth that uh, what Earth's atmosphere gives us is something called aerial or atmospheric perspective. So like off in the distance, you know, as an object kind of increases with distance, um, especially if you're looking at a landscape and you have two objects, let's say mountains, you can always tell which one is further in the distance and the one that's closer to you because of the increase in contrast of that blue hue. So essentially Earth's atmosphere. So yeah, on the moon, it's really difficult to even, you know, not only just perceive the actual size of an object, but also just differentiating which one's actually closer to you, which is something that's been a pretty big challenge. So yeah, it's really fascinating. It's really astounding just what those pictures show. And when you look at the actual distances that are reported, it's, it's pretty mind blowing. So what kind of consequences would that uh, kind of visual distortion have on the ability of like astronauts to actually do their job? Like if they're, say, like the Artemis mission trying to set up a permanent base on the moon, you know, what kind of implications would uh, this phenomenon have? So when we look at the Apollo archival reports, there were frequent, I mean, almost just nearly consistent documentation of, um, you know, perceptual distortion of terrain estimates, you know, disorientation, physical overexertion, depletion of oxygen resources, and of course, you know, aborted EVA missions on occasion. And um, usually this is because, um, you know, I think it was Apollo 14, um, it was astronauts um, Alan Shepard and Ed Edgar Mitchell. They initially estimated a large crater to be approximately, I think, roughly two to 300 yards away while navigating the lunar surface. This is after they landed. We're trying to, you know, set up a terrain map in the, for their surrounding landing site and so forth. And as they, you know, kept walking on foot towards this crater, it just was not getting any closer. And soon they realized after reassessing that the crater was over a mile away. And we're talking, you know, much farther than their initial estimates. 
So, you know, after a series of kind of unsuccessful attempts of traversing this crater, also once they reached it, they were exhausted. They definitely underestimated how far they were going to be able to, you know, travel. Um, Their oxygen was depleting. And so they ended up, you know, the goal of this mission was just to collect some crater samples right on the edge. Um, They had no idea how close they were to the crater, but they immediately decided to, you know, return back just to avoid, um, you know, losing any more oxygen than than they already had. And so um, with that, uh, after the fact, when they do their after action mission reports at NASA, they found out that they were only 50 feet away from the crater. So it really gave us an interesting you know, perspective on, OK, so because of this topography and just all these different you know, you know, external factors that we're not familiar with on Earth, it really just caused them to not be able to perceive the topographical depth of the surface on the moon and just all of these different types of contrasts and textual features that they did not have in order to actually make, you know, an assessment that would probably be a lot easier um, on Earth. So I can't judge distances like on Earth at the best of times, Oh no! you know, so I, I would be hopeless on the moon. I mean, for like <laughs> myriad reasons, I'd be hopeless on the moon, but in particular, trying to judge distance. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, that's interesting because it's... um. For the astronauts, there's like a planning how long that they, how many supplies they need to take with them to get somewhere. There's a huge risk of death, and also from the perspective of like the from from NASA or whoever's in mission control, they're they're putting so much money into it, and when they see like a, a failed mission uh, or sub submission um, on the moon, they're like ah, all that money and time that we spent, and they didn't. Eat, they're going to have to do it again and take more stuff with them. So from like everyone's perspectives potential huge loss or actual huge loss and i imagine it would be really disappointing and frustrating for the astronauts as well with this like hope that they're going to come to something completely new uh that they're going to discover and then it's like oh oops (laughs) yeah you know it's it's why nasa has been taking their you know we've been you know given an opportunity with artemis that we didn't necessarily have with apollo so when i teach about this subject a lot of times you know the question you know to your point where what if we get to this point and we can't, you know, succeed in this mission? You know, what is this going to look like? And so the difference between Artemis and Apollo was that Apollo was done during a Cold War. It was a different mentality, a different effort, a different time. Um, you know, we there were lives that were lost because of the efforts that we were trying to make to get to this, you know, to the moon, to the space race, and all, space race, excuse me, and all of that. So, you know, with Artemis, we definitely have you know, I would say probably a luxury to to really just sit and, and get through all of these and also just relearn a lot of things. Technology has changed. Everything's changed. And, you know, there's just a whole, you know, slew of things that NASA has to really revisit. And thankfully, we're given the opportunity to really take our time with it, you know, especially with our initial Artemis launch. It's, you know, yes, we had to delay it several times, but it was the right decision. And also safety is the priority overall. So, I mean, it's, but, you know, we we do consider that. We don't want to put, you know, our you know, first boots on the moon and have, you know, all these problems. So we, we definitely have, you know, the ability to really take the time to, to focus on all these different risks and areas and things like that, too. Hmm. And this is uh, technologies used when people actually get to the moon, but also technologies, new technologies we have now are helping people prepare but before the mission even starts as well. So one of the things you've been using in your experiments is uh, virtual reality. So um, as well as the data and experiences from the Apollo missions, you have run experiments on more people on Earth that test their depth perception in VR simulated lunar environments 
um, to yeah research more about how things can be more successful on the moon um, and a training, I suppose, as well. Did you find the experiences uh, matched up in any way between the astronauts on the actual moon at, from what they've said and the experiences of the virtual reality participants? I did find some similarities for sure in that there are key benefits of having an Earth-like atmosphere uh, for perception. And this did certainly aid in the estimations of distances and slopes in, in some conditions. Interestingly, though, I learned that having an Earth-like atmosphere alone is not enough to provide enough cues for perception. So, you know, it's about surface reflectance features, terrain types, and of course, gravity. So um, one interesting similarity that I noted um, that I think is relevant to if you, we were to, you know, do this in a real Earth environment as well is how um, people estimate the sizes of craters. So I would compare how a person would estimate the size of one crater, same size, you know, in both conditions. Um, I would have them look at, you know, an Earth crater and then a lunar crater, same dimension, same slope, everything. And um, because craters are not really a common feature on Earth or for most people, it's not something we encounter typically compared to maybe something more of like a landscape familiarity, like, you know, a mountain or something. Um, you know, it, it's interesting because they really overestimated the sizes of Earth craters. It was, um, you know, they just saw them as so much bigger than they actually were. Um, but we didn't really, you know, but compared to the moon, it was, they actually perceived most of them to be smaller. So, um, you know, with these huge Earth craters, I learned that, okay, because Earth affords us with, you know, uniform light distribution and we have all these textures, we can see all the way to the bottom of these craters. So we can see the topographical depth of this terrain and be like, oh, okay, this is, you know, this looks very steep, but also it's just an unfamiliar object. So in terms of, uh, you know, that maybe just estimates of size were a little off. But, you know, interestingly on the moon, um, you know, and I tried to model my VR, you know, environments as closely to, you know, what was described on the Apollo missions is that some of the craters were concealed or some craters you couldn't see at all. You know, so in certain instances, we had astronauts that, you know, you know, mistakenly, overestimated, you know, a certain crater slope by 30 degrees. Or if they were on a lunar rover, they accidentally completely ran into a boulder because they just had no visibility whatsoever. So in terms of that similarity, I did see like, okay, so yeah, some of these unpredictable conditions that I am rendering in this environment are matching up. Um, but, you know, and, and another similarity I did find was also just the impact of lunar gravity, you know. Um, so in VR, you know, obviously you can toggle the, you know, gravity to, you know, make it more realistic um, in that sense. So um, when they were driving, uh, you know, a lunar rover and lunar gravity, they also, uh, I had many participants who ended up crashing their rovers, whether it be, you know, flipping into a crater, you know, having an accident. And of course, in a VR environment, you can reset it. On the moon, you cannot, but there were instances where they also, you know, astronauts ran into accidents and things like that. So just trying to, you know, recreate in an experimentally controlled way, some of that, you know, predictive potential just like error chaos that can occur just because you're dealing with so many unfamiliar you know stimuli it's uh so yeah there was definitely some overlapping similarities but um you know vr in, in terms of that component is uh, a different beast in of itself in terms of you know what what it can be used for and, and you know the validity of it in some cases too so I was reading on your website that one of the results of the experiments that you ran was that participants could see uh, textures better in the lunar virtual environment when the sun elevation was quite low at around 30-ish degrees. 
but that low elevation also casts really long shadows, which could conceal surface features, which affects you know the kind of estimation of distance and everything. So does this mean that at different times of day on the moon, uh, they'd be better suited for particular tasks? You know, if there's something that's um, like really dependent on like distance estimation, do you, would it be better to wait for a particular time of day to do that? Uh, like, how would a how would an astronaut plan his or her day according to like sun elevation? Yeah, you know, that's a really great question. And it is something that, you know, elevation was really crucial for a lot of astronauts, um, in, in, especially in the absence of other cues. Um, you know, we, they basically referred to sun elevation in three different, you know, uh, I guess categories, a cross sun, up sun and down sun. And it was essentially a 30, 60 and 90 degrees. And um, obviously because of the brightness of the sun when it was at lower elevation, it just wasn't as intense, you know, it was kind of the scattering was a little bit, you know, uh, I guess diffused or kind of blockaded, I should say rather, um, from terrain. But it also resulted in what you were saying is just very just austere, you know, Mike Collins um, in Apollo 11, you know, he described just the, you know, in low elevation, you know, orbiting the moon, it was just such a hostile looking environment. So, um, but yeah, like astronauts, we, you know, we definitely plan on using the sun to uh, obviously, you know, plan our days accordingly. Um, interestingly, though, in um, one of our, you know, upcoming missions, I believe it's Artemis 3, um, you know, we were looking into potentially going to the lunar south pole. And that practically has no light at all. None. And so um, this is a little bit different than the other areas of location. And of course, elevation and planning and, and time of, I guess, lunar day that you can perform tasks does vary depending on, you know, what, where your landing site is located. Um, but a goal to go to the South Pole is to, you know, which is a very almost like permanently shadowed place on the moon. It contains ice, other minerals and other vital, you know, resources, you know, looking into maybe mining and things like that. Um, you know, so the absence of sunlight in that particular mission will be honestly the most challenging, mainly because, you know, being in complete darkness for that extended period of time, you know, we need to make sure that our astronauts are staying healthy. And also just EVAs are going to be so challenging. Imagine doing something in the black velvet of space. It's just, it's a different kind of blackness, you know, than turning off the lights, you know, in a room and uh, and what you're used to. So, um, yeah, it, it will be crucial. I think in uh, this first mission, though, we're pretty, uh, pretty honed in on trying to figure out how can we do everything in the absence of almost no light, which is going to be interesting. That sounds mm. absolutely terrifying. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I, I can't even, in, I can't even imagine that that kind of darkness you know that it's not just dark it's like the complete absence of light you know yeah. it, there's something i mean the psychological effects of that for any length of time must be like really extreme yeah i feel uh, sad in winter imagine how sad i'll be on the south pole of the moon very sad <laughs> you make it sound like this is like an inevitability you know that you're gonna end up in the south pole of the moon well, it's just something we have to start preparing for i've, put, I've got it on my bucket list um <laughs> Also, I think um, us on Earth, we rarely have experienced total darkness and can't really even imagine what it's like. If you turn off a light in your room, most people have some kind of like tiny blue light on some kind of electrical device or there'll be, be some um, ambient light from street lamps or moon ref moonlight coming through gaps in the curtains. Um, and when you're outside, there's always there's always something, right? There's always something shining through the clouds or reflecting off the clouds. So we're just not psychologically used to that kind of darkness. Yeah, I think 
I think the only place that you can probably find that in an earth like analog or comparison probably be in like those deep caves where mm-hmm. they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like dark adaptation, you know, we have receptors in our eyes that adju- allow us to adjust to the absence of light, you know, over 30 to 45 minutes. But you're right to your point, Lily. It's very much a, um, you know, a process of just taking in the light that's still there. It's just kind of a slow kind of adaptation to it. But, but it's never we're never really in the pure just absence of all light. And so do humans even have that capability to do that? You know, because there's some interesting kind of hypotheses. And what would happen if you were to do that, be exposed to no light for 30 days? What would happen to your vision? Um, and, uh, you know, short uh, answer is nothing good. But, you know, it's uh, something that we really don't want to tr- test out by anything. So, yeah. This is why I feel like Scotland should really be at the forefront of space travel, because like, I didn't see the sun until I was about six. You know, it's just constantly bleak. So I think we'd be quite well suited to these like very extreme periods of darkness. Inhospitable, used to it. Yeah, I mean, winter lasts about 18 months. Because there's no or, or very little sunlight in the South Pole of the Moon, does that mean that um, they will have to use a lot of artificial light and that will, again, behave differently uh, to the sunlight on the Moon um, and artificial light on the Earth? It's a great question, yeah. So... On the ISS, we've looked at different types of lighting to, you know, kind of improve um, astronauts' circadian rhythms so they don't, you know, because on the ISS, they're experiencing like 16 to 17 sunrises and sunsets a day. They're traveling around the Earth every 90 minutes. So, yeah, you know, it's it's pretty intense uh, for that reason. So we have a pretty good understanding of what types of lighting can make, you know, the circadian rhythms of astronauts better. But the thing is, is it's still not, you know, it's not going to, nothing replaces the sun's light or at least what we're used to on earth. And also even just because you get a little sun exposure in space, you are not being protected by any type of ray emissions. So you're looking at, you know, radiation, x-ray, U-ray, you name it, cosmic rays, you know, so when you get that little, you know, spurt of light, maybe at the South pole, you know, every couple hours, it it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be, it may not, you know, afford any, any positive effects, um, you know, especially with shielding, you're probably not going to get any effects of it at all, rather, just to protect the astronauts. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty crazy stuff. So when humans go to any kind of extreme environment, whether it's the depths of the ocean or space or anything like that, like we don't change the environment that we're going to. We simply take our habitable environment with us in spacesuits or diving suits or you know pods and all that sort of thing. What other uh, areas of research uh, is NASA exploring in terms of humans being in these extremely inhospitable environments. Uh, you mentioned radiation you know, a second ago. These are things that people might not really consider. You might think the biggest challenge is just getting there. But once you get there, there's a whole host of new challenges because the human body just isn't designed to be in that environment. Yeah, you know, I mean, we really, we try and touch on everything that we can. You know, we, we really try to be thorough with that because all of these things, is the way that we approach it is, you know, pretty much every health issue, cognitive issue, you know, we see it, we want to see it as like a web of issues, you know, like it all kind of is a very holistic, we need to address all these aspects. So I appreciate that question. Um, you know, I, I would say in terms of, um, you know, physiology, you know, fluid shifts are a really big one. Um, so in microgravity, all of your fluid shifts upward, and it can give the appearance sometimes of like, you know, that puffy face reduction in leg mass. Um, and which can also result in, you know, cardiovascular issues. Your heart doesn't have to work as hard to pump blood throughout the body, which can also, you know, present concerns if you're not 
very healthy, um, you know, re-entering Earth's atmosphere and being exposed to, you know, up to maybe five, seven times, you know, depending on if it's a safe, def- you know, descent, it's, it's, you know, maybe only, uh, you know, a few times uh, beyond your your weight. So, you know, four or five, six Gs, probably six Gs at, on average, I would say. And, um, you know, so with that, you know, you need to make sure that your heart can withstand, you know, not having to work as hard for an extended period of time and then also just coming back to Earth. So adaptation back to Earth is pretty, really one of the wildest things when it comes to just what your body has to go through to readapt to something that genetically it's it's bounded to and so um you know we really are looking into that to kind of make that transition easier um something too that we look just for long duration space missions is you know extreme isolation you know on the iss we have mission control you know they're on call 24 7 you know they're a second of communication you know response away essentially um but you know uh the further that astronauts move away from earth that communication delay is going to increase dramatically they have to become fully autonomous at some point um especially when they're going to mars so you know when we're looking at uh you know medical issues um you know or just how they spend their time you know we're trying to basically make it so okay you're a fully autonomous crew you can solve issues on your own <laughs> essentially you know with and if you need you can you know send a you can send us a call, but if you're on your way to Mars, you know, you're, you're going to wait a couple hours, you know, to get a response and, and so forth. So, you know, when it comes down to, yeah, things like that, it's, uh, definitely, um, you know, a challenge, but, you know, earth-like smells, you know, the, you know, the sounds of nature, little things that we take for granted on earth, astronauts miss so much, um, especially food. You know, a lot of times, you know, people don't think about how do we process all this food, but food is such a, crucial thing that they look forward to and is so vital to you know how they it's you know basically not only just for nutrition but uh just the way things are packaged so many things just kind of take the humanity out of you when you're in those environments and you have to adapt so we really want to look into just it really does come down to some of the little things that you wouldn't think of and so listening to astronauts and you know you know when they tell us like hey like you know i i think we need this like this is getting you know we need more of, I don't know, activities or we need better food. We need to figure out how to grow our own food. You know, I need, you know, I know some astronauts say that, you know, they um, they miss taking a shower. You know, they don't take a shower for, you know, nine months on the ISS. So things that were just so just mundane to us. So I think that overall we have very highly trained and qualified astronauts. So at this point, it's, you know, once we get, you know, those, the challenging issues, like, okay, we have solid spacecraft we have a solid plan everything seems in place you know we can't forget about those other things and that really wasn't factored into in the apollo missions at all so um, we definitely are obviously going to be changing that so Mm. and these uh physiological um effects that you mentioned the fluid being in different positions in your body does this also affect uh the astronaut senses i think i heard something about it affecting their taste but could this also affect their vision and affect the ability to do all the things we talked about before, their ability to complete tasks. Absolutely. So, yeah, when these fluids just kind of, you know, come up through the sinusoidal cavities, um, you know, so if you have sinus problems, you probably are not, you know, going to be, you're not going to be considered for selection because of this, because, you know, we do, ex- you know, see astronauts, they experience all this fluid buildup. So something interesting that we've been seeing happening is that a lot of this fluid is causing pressure on some of their optic nerves. And um, we've, we have not been able to fully generalize what this affects and what this effect does because it kind of impacts everyone differently. Just how everyone has different, I guess, um, 
capabilities for vision. So we've had uh, this fluid shift, you know, when it creates this pressure on the back of the eye, it, it ends up changing the anatomical structure of the eye. So one of two things can happen. You can come back to Earth as an astronaut and have distorted vision, or I've actually talked to at least one astronaut who came back and had perfect vision. Another way that we um, sense light that can affect astronauts' vision is um, when humans are outside the Earth's magnetosphere, they're exposed to more of the spectrum of light than we are used to. Uh, what effects could prolonged exposure to this have on the astronauts' vision? Just like you mentioned, the different pressures of fluids in the body can change the astronauts' vision. This exposure could also affect their eyes and their senses. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so just intense exposure to sunlight and space and we do have shielding designed for this and, and i can get to that after i kind of run through my list of potential issues um but it is still something that you know we need to monitor carefully you know so prolonged exposure to sunlight and space without any you know protection or minimal protection you know that can result in cataracts um we also have this interesting effect called snow blindness which is like corneal inflammation a lot of people in the antarctic so if we actually um i worked with um uh Two explorers, um, Justin Packshaw and Dr. Jamie Facer Childs, they kite skied across Antarctica and collected a bunch of data for NASA and, and ESA. And um, you know, we talked about that issue with snow blindness because the you know you have one color essentially in Antarctica for the you know ninety percent of the terrain you know at certain times of the year, and you have constant sun just reflecting. So if you're a skier, if you're a snowboarder, it's the same concept where you get that you know constant kind of reflection. You know, and if for a couple hours, not a big deal. For prolonged exposure, yeah, we have this issue of snow blindness, which, which essentially is, you know, just um, inflammation of the cornea. And then you can just have retinal damage just from the high energy particles um, causing vision problems. You can get these weird kind of uh, floaters, which a lot of, you know, um, you know, eye doctors, you know, tend to monitor closely in, in terms of they don't want any, you know, debris or damage floating around there, you know, behind the eye in, in that fluid. And also something interesting that astronauts have reported, which... We aren't sure exactly. We don't believe it's harmful, but it's interesting. They experience this like light flash phenomena. So we call it, you know, this cosmic ray visual phenomena where um, there are these high energy particles that are passing through the visual or retinal cortex. And astronauts are saying like, yeah, I'm getting these really brief light flashes. And so while they're not harmful, they can be kind of distracting. So, you know, we have grown in our understanding of just this, you know, the range at which we can have these risks. But yeah, just to mitigate them, I mean, we have, you know, our protective measures, you know, obviously the spacecraft, you know, shielding, um, you know, specialized, you know, ways to block UV radiation. We're, you know, we've been working on that for a while. Um, and also just monitoring ocular health, um, you know, pre, during and, and post, you know, spaceflight too. So, um, but yeah, I think um, and when we do reach that point of, you know, long, long duration missions to Mars, our goal is to not only just understand the harmful effects, but have a way to mitigate that in flight and also maybe treat it in flight. And so that's kind of like a next level challenge where it's easy to, you know, okay, we identify the problem now. How, you know, we can't always have all of our resources or ducks in a row in, in terms of how we kind of tackle medical problems just yet. So that's something that we're trying to figure out, you know, what devices can we use? What, you know, what, you know, medical interventions can we create or are available to prevent, you know, long-term damage and things like that? Hmm. Do, do we know yet what the density is like of these high energy particles? Because I'm wondering, like, how often do they happen to pass through the optic nerve or the eye? So, yeah, I mean, 
the range of cosmic particles, I mean, you have, you know, I know iron is is a really big one. I know that, um, and, uh, you know, you have uh, silicon and a few others that uh, our radiation groups tend to uh, kind of hone in on with the more, you know, these denser types of particles. Um, and I think overall, you know, Earth's magnetosphere does protect us. And we are still trying to, I guess, pose the question of, okay, yes, encountering a cosmic ray burst is extremely intense. Space is very big. So we obviously know what would happen if it did happen. But in terms of the statistical probability, you know, it's kind of it's something that we're still trying to, I guess, you know, model in terms of, okay, what is the actual likelihood? What are the inter- interventions of this? Um, but also when we go to Mars too, just, you know, radiation exposure and other kinds of, of you know, um, you know, service exposures, you know, to certain chemicals on the Mars surface also can create problems as well. So, but yeah, I see it's not um, like life-threatening frequent in terms of that, but the presence of them exists. And um, we've just been very fortunate that we haven't really had to, you know, face any detrimental things like that because of, you know, Earth's magnetosphere and, and things like that. So, yeah, I've heard that um, it's uh, frequent enough that they have to, even in aircraft actually on Earth, but uh, expect even more on um, spacecraft, have to include redundancy in their computational systems so that if there is a cosmic ray that hits the system and it f- uh, flips a bit, it doesn't cause the system to fail or computations to go terribly wrong. And so that um, how much redundancy is built into the computers kind of reflects how probable we think it is for these cosmic rays to hit them. Um, and there are different levels of that in different environments like Earth, we still do it. And, and then for Mooncraft, we'd have to do even more. Um, so maybe that's where more of the risk lies actually is computers going wrong and then uh, life support systems going down. No, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, I mean, because we've been looking at different, you know, shielding strategies for a while. And so I think the moon is going to be our test bed for so many uh, kind of validation, verification, or just, you know, trial and error, I guess, but within, you know, a low, with a low risk of, you know, um, probability, you know, f- regarding safety. But um, yeah, so I would say that, yeah, we're really going to learn a lot in terms of what types of materials can we use? How do our systems work on the moon? And also, you know, a lunar analog, then, you know, once we reach that point where we have gateway and we have established our own, like, you know, station around the moon, then we can look at like these systems and say, okay, well, this works here on the moon. We think this will work on Mars. Why, why it might, why it might not like things like that. We're still, you know, but we are prepared. That's definitely like on the line where we, you know, once we reach success on the moon, we still might have to go down, you know, back to square one with a couple of these things, just because it is, you know, just a different environment, essentially, in a number of ways. So, it's incredible when you think about the vastness of space that you can get hit by anything. So like it just feels really unlucky that if you're out there in the universe and that anything at all hits you, that's just, I mean, that's my level of bad luck. You know, it's like being in a stadium that a bird poos on you. You know, it's just, that was a really bad analogy. So, <laughs> no, it's so true. Like that, yeah, like you have a tiny little micrometeoroid that's flying like 30,000 miles an hour, or just, you know around you know and that's yeah it can just rip through your spacesuit it can rip through anything and we have had a few instances on the iss where we've had little you know pieces of debris like space debris you know it is it can be a problem you know if that's why you know all of our space agencies just not nasa but 
globally, we have to be very, you know, strategic in terms of where we kind of land things, you know, especially when we're retiring stuff. But yeah, especially with micrometeoroids and things like that, it's 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 a real concern. So you're not you're not alone in that by any means when it comes okay. to that. <laughs> when you fear the bird poo, you're just like an astronaut fearing uh, a yes. micro asteroid. Thank yeah. you. I feel a lot more important now. Um, I've actually, I was reading the other day uh, about space junk and space debris and everything. And um, there's lots of startups in, there's actually some in Scotland and there's some in Europe that are working to use AI to sort of map um, all the space junk that we can so that we can hopefully one day try and fix it. But as more and more commercial companies get involved in space and as it becomes just a more normal thing to launch things up into orbit the amount of space junk must it's going to increase exponentially it's going to be in already when you look at the models of how much there is up there it feels crazy that there's so much junk and there's elon musk's car just floating around as well is it a full-size car it's an actual car Mm. i'm not a massive fan of elon musk and that feels like such an obnoxious thing to do <laughs> you know? so space isn't ours we can't just go and like dump all of our crap in it what was the purpose of that was it just showing off or was there it's just, something just showing off there wasn't anything to learn from it space. can't drive cars in space yeah so we learned that that's useful cargo roads car no go space <laughs> so anyway one thing that we were talking about uh, a little while ago um was that obviously a lot of these phenomenon uh are they sound really inconvenient if you're uh, an astronaut on the moon but some of them also sound really beautiful like the uh the lunar horizon glow caused by the scattering of sunlight through uh through dust in the atmosphere do you reckon that'll be like a tourist attraction you know maybe even just in vr and also is that kind of thing unique to our moon or are you going to get that in any kind of um low-ish gravity environment yeah you know it's kind of like you know the the northern lights of uh of our little solar system but no yeah so it it isn't actually you know you know you i guess unique to the moon so it's uh basically a lot of airless bodies they're basically you know you know planets or moons or you know somewhere in between within exospheres or just any tenuous type of atmosphere um mercury for example has a similar kind of uh lunar or i guess well not lunar, but horizon glow effect and, you know, has specific appearance and characteristics, you know, of that horizon glow. Um, and it really just depends, like, just the what composition of, you know, the surface the density, you know, obviously with Mercury being closer to the sun, it's going to have probably a, you know, different, you know, more unique um, kind of angle of incidence, sunlight scattering and creating that glow. But, um, you know, it has been observed that they think they call like Mercury's tail or sodium or something like it's a certain type of tail. And, um, you know, this tail is basically just caused by the sun just scattering life off of just um, sodium atoms in Mercury's exosphere. And it creates like a faint kind of elongated glow, you know, away from the planet. If you know, if you've seen any of those illustrations, you know, our solar system has a tail. Everything just kind of has a solar tail because we're moving through it. But, you know, Mercury tends to have like a unique kind of, uh, you know, glow to it as well. And, you know, and and we see that just to, you know, with um, for comets, for example, and, you know, obviously just because of the ice and everything burning when it gets warm, you get that tail. So, it really is just about the interaction of what the object in space is made of and how it responds to just a sun, you know, heat from the sun. So, but yeah, because depending on like the type of chemical composition that it has, you know, if you take in chemistry, it's like, oh, you can create some pretty cool colors, you know, and things like that. So, yeah, it sounds beautiful. It might take a little bit more than that for me to go to Mercury, though. It feels mm-hmm. fairly inhospitable. Yeah. It's like I wouldn't even go to the north of Scotland to see the northern lights. So <laughs> I'm definitely not going to go to Mercury. <laughs> 
So with that said, I think now it might be time for some wild speculation. In each episode of The Last Question, we ask our guests to look beyond the scope of their research and speculate wildly about the future. Kat, if you could change one thing about the human body to make us better suited for space, what would it be? Well, that's a good one. Um, hmm. I guess I know it can be like imaginative, but I'm also, you know, a scientist in me is trying to combine the two, maybe do like a sci-fi response. I would probably say, you know, one benefit would be cell regeneration, just like constant, you know, being able to reproduce, you know, having having a way to discard and just reproduce, you know, damaged cells. So kind of like being a water bear or the tardigrades, you know, those like those types of little tiny organisms can survive in the vacuum of space. But once they reach an environment that is, you know, conducive, they can essentially just wake up and take off and, and, you know, take off from where they're former life was. So I think that would be something really cool. Um, obviously, humans being very complex, that would be very challenging, but that would be in a perfect world. I think that would be really cool. Um, yeah, for the human body just to be able to because then that way, you know, it wouldn't be an issue of long term space travel. If you could just go dormant and then wake up and oh, my gosh, you're here, you're on Mars or, you know, you're not, um, you know, I guess. And also just it would deal with so many health issues just in general, you know, just in terms of, you know, curing so many so many problems that humans deal with yeah i imagine they're researching it well i think they're researching it a lot now for anti-aging treatments and then the byproduct of that could be uh, in space it will help a lot even on a shorter term um you could... say tardigrades are easily my top three animals like they're just so cool and they're, they're very the cute. little adorable little guys you know how do we cross tardigrade with human this is an experiment there's actually there's a some sort of clothing brand that's just released uh it's like a duvet style jacket that looks a lot like a tardigrade oh. it's really weird how many arms does it have only two oh. because it's still made for humans it's not made for a giant tardigrade yeah because you could cross a human and a tardigrade and instead of getting a human that can regenerate its cells you just get a massive <laughs> tardigrade yeah with only like two arms and blue eyes or something yeah that'd be messed up when you <laughs> said cell regeneration for some reason i thought you said celery generation Celery. Well, we can go with that too. We can we can see where that would get us. And we would have unlimited amounts of celery on every spacecraft. Just you know, the most flavorful of all of all the Can you imagine if that's all all we could take into space if they only had celery? Oh. Like just, I just oh punt myself out the airlock immediately. <laughs> oh God, I know. Like, well, I mean, they, they've been trying to you know they've been looking to grow some microgreens and things like that, but. I mean, there's nothing that beats just getting like a Five Guys cheeseburger, though. And it's just like, you guys, you know, why can't why can't we have that? Just just figured that out. But of course, we have to be very healthy. But I think that, yeah, that would be pretty, you know, celery regeneration might be, a, you know, maybe not at the top of NASA's list, but definitely, definitely plan. We'll start a, a letter writing campaign to try and get it, you know, bumped up the agenda a little bit. Celery, not not burgers. So we can have celery on burgers. We have lab-grown burgers, maybe in space one day, or yeah. like um, a three D food printer that prints anything. I mean, as long as you have the elements. We really wanted to look into that, and I know that the food lab did for some time. I guess um, there was just some logistics behind it, just in terms of like that. But yeah, I mean, printing three D food that would be great. Just imagine like what you could, you know. I mean, even if it's a like a Beyond Burger, it's still a burger. It's like I, I was still, you know, eat it and you know whatnot. But I think, um, yeah, I think it was just like cleaning it. Or something i can't really remember exactly what what the issue was it was quite a while but we are 3d printing um habitats to see how that can create some sustainable uh 
construction for like habitats on the moon and on and potentially on Mars. So I think at NASA JSC, they just finished building their 3D printed habitat. And so they're testing it out and seeing, yeah, yeah, it's pretty neat. So maybe using like the, the you know, materials around you, you know, and, and things like that. So I read something the other day about um, there's new or they've just done some research into extracting mm-hmm. extracting water molecules from dust particles on on the moon for like a really like enormous supply of water. The problem is I cannot remember anything about it, so it's a moot point, and I probably shouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> it's interesting from yeah. just that little s- snippet, though. Yeah. You've got the headline, but not the article. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. classic me. Probably didn't pay for the subscription. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know that they they have found areas of opportunity to to do that, and we've also I think it's called Moxie. Is like uh, it's a similar concept, not for water, but for oxygen. That is basically, I think it's for the Martian atmosphere to convert the Martian atmosphere into breathable oxygen. So yeah, we definitely have um, something like that for water as well. I don't know how you know far along is it. I'm only more familiar with with the atmosphere conversion one, but um, but yeah, I mean, like there's a lot of water in the moon. It's just mining. Mining is super expensive, and I mean, we have enough issues mining on Earth without you know we can only get this far. You know, into the Earth's crust is insane. So we probably need to really just upgrade a lot of our mining gear too, if we really want to get down into the, you know, the surface and, uh, and see what's down there. But yeah, I mean, there, there's probably, yeah, there's probably a good chance that we could eventually, but yeah, it's probably not, not there yet. I don't think. I really admire humanity for finding all these like really difficult things on earth, like mining and then thinking, right, this is super tough and we have not perfected it. Let's do it on the moon, <laughs> you know, rather than like thinking, let's, let's sort it out. It's like, no, 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 straight to the moon. moon. It's going to be awesome. We'd like to thank Dr. Catherine Rahill for joining us today for that fascinating look at the future of humanity in space and how humans are going to cope in space. Uh, if you'd like to find out more about lunar psychophysics and Catherine's research, you can check out her website, catrahill.com. That's K-A-T-T-R-A-H-I-L-L.com. And here we are, the first last question. This is where we pose our listeners a question, and in the future, we'll discuss some of the most interesting answers. Our question this week is, will human beings have a permanent off-world colony by 2050? And that's it from us today. Uh, We'll be back next time with more insight, innovation, and wild speculation. Feel free to drop us an email to say hello or to suggest a topic or just make conversation. Uh, you can reach us at datafest at thedatalab.com or you can find us on Twitter at datafest underscore. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a review on your platform of choice. It goes a long way and means a lot to us. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time for another episode of The Last Question. Goodbye. Does yours glass glow tonight?